And we'll take up the reading from verse 53 and continue on to chapter 14, verse 12. The Word of God where it says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honour. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, This man, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for him and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Well, it's nice to be back. Uh, It's uh, good to see you all again. It's uh, nice to come back and discover that Brooke and Brian have a baby. Uh, No one else has had a baby while I've been away unexpectedly, have they perhaps uh, just just checking? Uh, it has happened before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, uh, this uh, this year I uh, have uh, on some some Thursdays I've been heading out into some of the parks in town with one of the other ministers with. Uh, Jason, this is the minister at St Andrews and some of the people there. We've been going out, we've been handing out the Gospel of Mark uh, to people uh, and just asking if they'd like to be interested in reading about Jesus and, and then engaging in any conversations that we uh, can muster up. And what's interesting uh, about doing that is the responses that people make. Uh, it's interesting to see how people respond to that. My uh, initial assumption was that people would uh, you know, kind of beat me up or something like that. Uh, but actually, it's surprising to see 
how interested people generally seem to be. Uh, I think in six weeks they handed out 100 copies uh, of the Gospel of Mark, just an hour once a week. It's pretty impressive. Uh, people will say no if they don't want, uh, if they're not interested, but, uh, but some people are interested. Uh, it's interesting to, to see some people are uh, antagonistically uninterested, some people are just mildly disinterested, some people seem to be quite interested to see what, who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. Well, in uh, this part of the Gospel of Matthew, we, we catch these glimpses of the ways that people responded to Jesus himself. The last time that we looked at Matthew, which is, must be about six months ago now, uh, Jesus uh, told a whole series of parables in the section just before what we're looking at today. Uh, and one of the parables that he told was the parable of the sower where the, the farmer goes out and he sows the seed in all the different kinds of soil and uh, some seed grows up, some doesn't. It was a parable about the way that people respond to Jesus. And I think that what happens in this next section, at least in the beginning, is we get some of those ideas being worked out in the historical realities. Jesus told a story about how people respond to him and now we begin to see that uh, in practice. We pick up uh, this account just after Jesus has finished the parables and he goes to his hometown and he begins to preach in the synagogue in his hometown. The synagogue was the place where the, the Jewish people would go to hear the Bible read out and to hear the Bible explained and where they would praise and worship God. Uh, and when the people hear Jesus teaching uh, in the synagogue, they're amazed when they hear about the miracles that he's done in other places. They're amazed. Uh, look at uh, verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers from? No one said that to me as I wander through the park, but, uh, but people, people see Jesus and they're amazed, they're astonished by the authority he teaches with, by the things that he's able to do. And yet their amazement, strangely enough, doesn't lead them to worship in Christ or to trust in Christ or to follow in Christ but it leads them to offence. They're offended because they think that Jesus is just an ordinary person. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? He's too familiar. Don't we know this Jesus? How could he be an impressive person? Jesus says, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honour. There's only one place that a prophet won't be received, that's in his hometown. And the chapter ends with this rather disturbing observation about Jesus' work in that town. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's a terrible uh, reality, isn't it, that the most powerful person ever to live, God come in the flesh, came to this town, came to this village and he did few miracles there because of the lack of faith of the people. It's not as though Jesus was constrained by their faith or by their unbelief as if he would really have liked to have done more but he was kind of held captive by their faithlessness. No, that's not what's going on. Rather, everywhere else where Jesus had gone, people came flooding to him in crowds, didn't they? 
People would run to him because they heard what he could do and they thought, maybe he can do that for me. But the people in in Jesus' hometown, they saw what he did, they heard his amazing teaching and instead of running to Jesus, they said, oh no, that's just just the son of of Mary and Joseph. I I know his brother, I went to school with his brother. They never came to him, they never brought their sick to him. Look at uh, the end of chapter 14, turn over the page to the end of chapter 14 and to verse 34. This is what happened in another place a little bit later and when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. We know that old saying well, don't we, that familiarity breeds contempt. And it's extraordinary, isn't it, to think that someone could be teaching so clearly, teaching with so much authority, doing such amazing miracles and people would be disinterested and offended actually by what Jesus was claiming to do and to be. It's it's astonishing, isn't it, that God could send the Messiah to save the world and people would be disinterested because he was too familiar too well known. And yet in some ways I think that's the condition of many people in our society. We're living in a post-Christian world. There's lots of people growing up who don't know anything about Jesus at all but there's a lot of people over the age of 30 uh, or 40 say who've grown up in a society where Jesus is well known and they're disinterested because Jesus is too familiar G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote a book, he he was a novelist last century and he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man and in that book he makes the point that Christianity uh, in the West is rejected not because it's unbelievable but because it's too familiar. He says if you were to kind of uh, come to people with an oriental myth uh, about Jesus you know, from, from uh, coming from the east rather than Jesus growing up in Palestine and in Israel, uh, then people would be immediately captivated by that. People would lap it up. It would be novel. It would be attractive. Jesus is too familiar. The answer for us is not to dress Christianity up as something different than it is as though the solution for Jesus would have been to pretend to be the Dalai Lama or Muhammad or somebody else other than he was. No, the solution for us in our situation, in our world is to try and open people's eyes, to try and pull back the veil so that people can see that the reason that they're rejecting Jesus is not because he's unbelievable but because he's too familiar. And being too familiar, they think he's not worth considering. So some people rejected Jesus because he was too familiar. In the next section, we see uh, Herod responding, not first of all to, uh, to Jesus, uh, but to, to John the Baptist. Uh, Herod hears reports about uh, Jesus and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead? 
Uh, it's likely that Herod was probably being more hopeful than realistic uh, because he put John the Baptist to death and he foolishly uh, had done that and he regretted it. And the rest of that section that Ben read for us kind of looks back in time, it looks back to earlier events. Uh, Herod had arrested John because, uh, because John was, was speaking out against Herod's marriage. So Herod, uh, Herod's brother Philip had married, or half-brother I think it was, uh, had married this lady called Herodias uh, and then Herod had kind of fallen in love with her and she'd left Philip and then Herod and Herodias got, uh, got married and John was saying that was wrong. John was saying you shouldn't have uh, Herodias as your wife. And so, John, uh, so Herod had John arrested, put him in prison uh, and he wanted to kill John at first but he was afraid of doing that because the people held John in high respect. They thought that John was a prophet uh, and so Herod decided not to do that. Then on his birthday he made that foolish oath to his uh, daughter, to Herodias' daughter, uh, and he says, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. She asks for John's head and Herod does it. Not because it's a principled stance, he thinks it's the right thing to do, but because he's made the oath and he doesn't want to go back on his oath because his dinner guests might think that he's weak, uh, that he's unfaithful, that he's not a very nice man. In a way, Herod's dealings with John the Baptist are emblematic, uh, representative of the way that he uh, re- is responding to Jesus. Jesus says later on in Matthew 17 that what has happened to John the Baptist is exactly what's going to happen to Jesus as well. Herod was intrigued by John. Uh, in, in Mark's Gospel, it almost seems as though Herod is even uh, res- respects John to some degree. Uh, but Herod put him to death anyway. Why? Because he was afraid of everybody around him. He wanted to please everybody around him. Herod misunderstood who Jesus was. He thought he was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He wasn't. Uh, Jesus wasn't uh, John raised from the dead. Jesus is God's son. And John was the one sent to tell the world about Jesus. But even if Herod had grasped who Jesus is, even if Herod had been able to see who Jesus truly is, it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered because Herod was so consumed with what everybody thought. Herod was more interested in pleasing everybody else than in following God's true King, Jesus Christ. The story of Herod, I think, is is enlightening and challenging for us because we tend to think that if we have the right facts about what's going on, we'll make the right decision. If only I understand clearly, I'll choose the right thing. I think that comes from our belief in science, that uh, we're, we're scientists at heart and we believe foolishly that if we have all the right facts we make the right decision. But that's not true. We always make the wrong decision with the right facts because it, 
Our, the decisions that we make aren't just intellectual. They're shaped by our hearts and our desires as well. And, if you like, our ability to judge facts is obscured by the desires of our hearts. It's a sobering reminder, I think, the story of Herod, of just how powerful relationships can be as motivators. I recently heard someone observe, I think the the, uh, observation originally came from a Christian psychologist, but the observation was that for every one of us there is some person in the world for whom we would give up everything. For every every one of us, there's one person in the world for whom we would give everything up, leave everything and go another way. I don't know how you could prove that to be true or false. I mean, it seems a bit of an outrageous claim in some ways. But the idea is provocative, isn't it? The point is that our relationships with people are incredibly powerful. People abandon the gospel, don't they? Because they fall in love with someone other than their spouse or, or somebody else altogether. People retreat from Jesus and from the faith because they become increasingly committed to a circle of friends who aren't committed to following and loving Jesus. What's so deceiving as well, I think, is that you might, like, uh, like Herod, maintain some kind of remnants of religious and moral ideas and feelings. Herod was distressed, wasn't he, at the idea of putting John to to death. He didn't want to do it. But he did it. He did it anyway because he was more concerned about what people thought than about what God thought. You might have strong feelings about Christ. You might feel terrible as you are slowly abandoning the gospel. But at the end of the day, it's not our feelings that get us into heaven or send us to hell. It's the commitment that we make to trusting and following Jesus Christ. It's our clinging to Jesus with what little strength that we have that makes the difference. So there are these two kinds of negative responses to Jesus. There are the people who reject Jesus because he's too familiar And there are people like Herod who reject Jesus because they're more interested in what the people around them think. The next two responses that I want to look at are responses from people who do trust and follow Jesus. So turn to chapter 14 again and to verse 22. So we're skipping over the feeding of the 5,000 and and then Matthew writes in verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. 
Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to think, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. It's helpful uh, to realise from the beginning that the disciples, unlike the other groups of people that we've met so far in these other two uh, stories, the disciples were willing to submit to Jesus' authority. Jesus said, get in the boat, go to the other side of the shore and the disciples were up for that. Uh, They listen to him and they do what he says. Jesus stays behind to pray. He prays on the mountain alone and by the time he's finished praying, the disciples are in the middle of the lake uh, a long way from the land and so being the son of God, he decides to uh, walk on the water to reach them in the middle of the lake And the disciples are a bit concerned by that uh, and they think that Jesus is a ghost. Peter, uh, uh, after Jesus uh, tries to console them, Peter comes up with a cunning test to really work out if it is Jesus. Peter says, uh, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. It's a a cunning test because he realises that Jesus has the power to make that happen. He's just... Seen uh, Jesus feed 5,000 people, he's seen Jesus do other miracles, uh, and so he wants to be sure that Jesus is really who he says he is, that it's not just a ghost uh, coming on the water. Peter uh, is, uh, he, he decides to get out of the boat after Jesus tells him to come to him, and he begins well, doesn't he? Uh, he begins well, but then things quickly go pear shaped. When he sees the storm and when he sees the wind, uh, he begins to sink and he cries out for Jesus to save him, which Jesus does. And yet Jesus also rebukes Peter for his small faith. Jesus says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I think it's helpful uh, to sort of compare this account of what happened to Peter with what's happened so far with the people in Jesus' own town. It's helpful to realise that small faith is not the same as unbelief. As one writer puts it, Peter has faith in Jesus strong enough to get him out of the boat but not strong enough to weather the storm. When Jesus met the people of unbelief in his hometown, he could only do a few miracles there. But when Peter's small faith leads him to get out of the boat and sinking to cry out to Jesus, Jesus still reaches out and grabs Peter by the hand. You might be a person of great fear and great doubt. You might fear the judgement of God. You might fear past sins. You might doubt the extent of God's love and the extent of God's mercy. You might doubt the, the, uh, the effect of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You might be facing death or you might have faced near death in the past 
and you might be afraid, you might have doubts about where you will end up, where you will spend eternity. Will it be with God or will it be cast away from the presence of God? Well, as a person of, as a person of uh, small faith, I'm so encouraged by this story in this Gospel that Jesus is in the business of helping people with small faith. Jesus is in the business of helping people with weak faith and with doubts and with questions. Jesus rescuing us doesn't depend on the strength of our faith but it depends on his strength and his power and on us calling out to him to have mercy on us. And yet, and yet, even though Christ saves us despite our weak faith, weak faith and small faith does make the journey that much more difficult. I'm a great pessimist. I always imagined the very worst thing that could happen. I had a friend, I studied with a, with a friend who was uh, possibly a worse pessimist than me, if it's possible, uh, and he read this book and in the book the guy said there's, there's no difference between pessimists and optimists. They're both great visionaries. It's just that pessimists always envision the worst possible scenario. Uh, and so my friend used to say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a visionary. Uh, so maybe that's you, you might be a great visionary you might be able to envision all the worst things that could happen. That makes life difficult, doesn't it? It makes us ineffective as Christians. But Jesus asks Peter, I think, a very helpful question. Jesus says to Peter, why did you doubt John Carson uh, said something something quite helpful about that question and he says that question helps both Peter and us recognise that doubts and fears quickly disappear before a strict inquiry into their cause. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying when you stop and think about it doubts disappear. Jesus is saying to Peter, why did you doubt? You know who I am. If only Peter had stopped and and thought about it. Okay, there's there's wind and waves, there's a storm, I might drown. Hang on, Jesus is the son of God. He's walking on water, it's not an issue. We doubt and we fear because it's instinctive and faith and trust is not instinctive. You see, we need to believe the gospel more and more every day. The trouble is that there's so much unbelief still in our hearts that when the, the doubts and the fears and the ifs and the, and the what might happens come up, we're afraid. But Jesus says, why are you doubting? Why aren't you trusting? You know who I am. It's a bit like a fear of heights, isn't it? Uh, I, I don't know, you might be afraid of something, or it might be something like uh, uh, falling, off, falling out of a, an enormous building. I remember visiting uh, 
The Telstra, uh, I used to work for Telstra at one point, and I went to visit a building uh, of theirs in Melbourne. Oh, it's a, the big tower, I can't think. Yeah, I think that's, that's, what, that's what it was. And it was really, I saw like the 26th floor or something like that. And it was floor-to-ceiling glass panels. Oh, fair dinkum. You know, and, and there was a seat just opposite the window. I thought, who's going to sit looking out the window? You're mad. But you, have, you stand there and you, and, and you start to feel a bit queasy and you have to say to yourself, I'm no safer in the centre of this building than I, than I am near the window. And we need to do the same thing in the Christian life. When we see those doubts and fears, when they, when they come up, we need to step back, we need to say, why am I afraid? Why am I doubting? And we need to remind ourselves of who it is that we're trusting and we're following. We need to remember that Jesus is the Son of God who died to take away the sins of the world. We need to remember that Jesus, that, that the Father is the loving Father who sent his Son even while we were still sinners. We need to remember that the Father and the Son have made their home with us through the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. Why are you afraid? Jesus is the Son of God. It's helpful to see too, I think, at the end of this, at the end of this section that faith examined and tested, small faith examined and tested, becomes stronger faith. At the end of this episode, the disciples catch a, a new glimpse of who Jesus is and they say, surely this is the Son of God and they bow down and worship. And it's the same in our lives as well, I think. Our doubt and our failures and the doubt and failures of the Christians around us viewed through the, through the lens of the Bible, challenged through the lens of the Bible, lead us to a greater and a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and of who God is. Small faith tested and examined through the lens of the Bible is a growing faith and it's a deeper faith. Well, before we finish, I want to look at just one, quickly at just one more response to Jesus and this is one of my favourite uh, ones in all the Bible. Uh, I wanted to just look in chapter 15, verse 21 to 28, which is the Canaanite woman. I remember once in a Bible study I said, I love the Canaanite woman. Uh, and they, this is a bit childish. You know, people are like, Carl, the Canaanite woman. <laughs> so whenever I think of the Canaanite woman, I cannot help but think of that. Anyway. But I do, I love the Canaanite woman. She's my favourite person in the Gospels because her faith is so astonishing and and I hope we'll see that. So Matthew 15 verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. It's a strange and confronting episode, this one, I think, because Jesus seems reluctant to help this woman. I think that puzzles us greatly and troubles us, I think. Uh, He is reluctant, it seems, because of her nationality. She isn't a Jew, she was a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the historic enemies uh, of God's people. But I think what Jesus is doing here, why he seems so reluctant, I think what Jesus is doing here is testing this woman's faith. I think he's also testing the views of the people around him. He's testing the views of the disciples and the Pharisees. The disciples wanted Jesus to send this woman away. They say, she's pestering us, she's being annoying, Uh, send her away. The Pharisees probably didn't have any time for this woman either because she was a Canaanite, because she was a foreigner, uh, and they always considered themselves to be better than uh, the foreigners. It seems that what Jesus is doing is pretending to adopt the views of the people around him. So when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs, he's kind of uh, playing the devil's advocate, uh, if you like. After all, in the next uh, section, uh, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus feeds 4,000, he gives bread to 4,000 foreigners, 4,000 dogs, in inverted commas. Jesus is adopting the views of the Pharisees and when this woman answers and when she says, gives her answer to Jesus, she's responding not so much to Jesus but to the Pharisees as well. She says, yes Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. It's a statement of profound faith. It's a statement of profound faith because it expresses two great truths I think about what faith, real faith, is like. First, it shows incredible humility. I think if somebody said to us, to you or I, basically implied that you or I was a dog, we probably wouldn't take that very well. But this woman is coming to the Son of God and saying, actually, you know what? You're right. In a sense, that's true. I don't have anything. I have no claim. I have no claim on you, Jesus. I have no reason to, to ask you to give me anything. As Martin Luther said, we're just poor beggars telling other poor beggars where they can find bread. One of the greatest obstacles to true faith is pride, spiritual pride. We're too proud to think of ourselves as undeserving and we're too proud to be beggars. But this woman speaks with profound faith and profound humility when she says, just give me a crumb, the crumb that the dogs get. That's all I want. The second aspect of this woman's great faith is that she clings to Jesus. 
when it looks like Jesus might not help her, she isn't content to go away. She doesn't go, oh well, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll try the next you know, miracle worker down the road. Perhaps I'll try the, the next spiritual scheme. Now even a scrap from Jesus is better than a feast somewhere else. She wants Jesus. She clings to Jesus. I think of those words of Peter uh, in John's Gospel. Where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? Well, maybe that describes you. Maybe you're not looking anywhere else and you just want the smallest scrap from Jesus' table. Maybe that's your great hope. Maybe you're afraid that Jesus might turn you away. Well, be encouraged that Jesus didn't turn this woman away. He said to her, you have great faith. Your request is granted. People respond to Jesus in all kinds of different ways, don't they? How have you responded to Jesus? Are you not really interested because Jesus is too familiar? Are you kind of interested but not willing to commit because you're more worried about what everybody else says and thinks? Are you like Peter? You've got out of the boat but life is hard because there's so much doubt and fear and you need to remind yourself of who Jesus is. Or perhaps by the grace of God you're like this Canaanite woman Lord, just give me a crumb from the, my master's table and that will be enough. People respond to Jesus in all kinds of different ways. How have you responded to the Son of God? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent Jesus into our world so that we could know you, so that we could be forgiven by you, so that we could be restored into a working relationship with you. Lord, help us to receive Jesus with faith and trust. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't ignore him because of the familiarity of having heard the stories about him over and over again, for some of us perhaps since childhood. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't ignore Jesus because we're so bound up with what everybody around us thinks. Lord, help us to respond with that faith of the Canaanite woman who just wanted the merest touch, the merest crumb from the table of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to pray too that for those whose faith is tested and tried and who struggle with doubts and fears, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. It would help us to remember every day who Jesus is and his great power and his great love. 
And Lord, we pray too that as we take the gospel to people outside our church, our friends and our family and the neighbourhoods in which we live, Lord, we pray that as we take that message that people would respond like this Canaanite woman as well, with faith and trust, clinging to Jesus, cleaving to him. Lord, we pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.